If I could have you rise for the reading of God's word. We're in Romans chapter 5. And I'm going to be speaking on verses 3 through 5, but we want to, to get the context going. Let's read from the beginning of the chapter, chapter to verse 5. Let's begin. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's pray. Dear precious Lord, we are so grateful and thankful that you have not left us in the dark, but you have given us your words written for all of us so we can meditate, so we can read your scriptures and see your greatness. This is your revealed will, which has told us who you are and why we are to worship you. And as we go through this book, this chapter, these verses, Lord, please bless us. Have your Holy Spirit give us wisdom and discernment to understand what we're reading and to ultimately love you with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. For these things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So I've titled this sermon, Suffering is Not in Vain. And you can ask yourself the question, why is suffering not in vain? Because suffering, to use the terminology of today, it sucks. Suffering is not fun. It's horrible at times. And depending on the levels of suffering or the, th the events and the things that you're going through, it can be downright depression. As you look uh, in the news, so many children that die leaving their parents where it should be the other way around right the parents should the, the the children should be bearing their parents but it doesn't always happen that way that is extreme suffering i do not wish to go through that and i can't really understand that because it hasn't happened to me and it hasn't happened to a lot of us although there are some we've lost loved ones we've been left to so many different things, losing our jobs, being outcasts, being spit on and looked at in, in shame and in just people just, you know, in this world, in the depravity of this world, there could be a lot of evil things that could be done to you. So it sucks, it's horrible. But suffering is not in vain. There is a reason for suffering. And ultimately, we have hope in our God because God keeps his promises. As we look through these three verses, because it's going to be three through five. Those are the verses that I'm 
going to be looking through. We're going to go in reverse. I'm going to change it up a little bit. I want to start off with verse 5. And the section where it says, Because God's love has been poured into our hearts. What is God's love? If you do not know what God's love is, if you have no trust that God is love, and it's righteous, holy, beautiful, majestic love, then you're in a world of hurt. And your destiny in this world, not in the next, in this world is going to be a lot of suffering that you will not understand. You will not have the wisdom of God to know why it is you have to go through these things. So let's look at Romans 5. 8 through 9, which states, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. That should be enough. But let's keep reading. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, we are now not guilty and we are now not facing what we deserve. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, and you guys know this. I know you know this. There is nothing worse than the wrath of God. That is the worst thing that there is. If you do not believe that in your heart, if you actually think there's worse than that, you're not reading the scriptures correctly. Or you're not reading them at all. Which we have that in churches. A lot of times people just are not reading their Bibles anymore. Or they're reading certain sections that they like. Usually sticking with the Gospels and you know a few of these books. Never read the Old Testament except for Genesis. <laughs> you know, there's people that do that. And I've fallen in that. I was doing the same thing. Until you read the whole counsel of God, you realize, first and foremost, that even though it seems really harsh, like we've been speaking in the Sunday school of all these commandments and the punishments, God is merciful. We should be dead. We should be ready and willing, not ready and willing, but ready to face the wrath of God because of who we are. That's who we really are. But God has changed us. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That while we're, we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so what is this love? Also this love of salvation of the wrath of God. How is it portrayed and shown to the world? Let's go to John 316 through 18. And I'm going to use the translation from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Because it actually gets the Greek correct at the beginning. We normally have heard it as, for God so loved the world. Which is correct. But what does the so mean? For let's Read this on the screen and listen to the words. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, 
That's the wrath of God. But have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world. He didn't send them to condemn them, but if they're not saved, they're condemned, right? But that the world might be saved through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned. That's why Christ is not coming into the world to condemn, because we are condemned from birth. And if it's not for the blood of Christ, by the Holy Spirit to regenerate us, and change our nature from sin to Christ, we are already condemned. Because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Written in our scriptures. So, when we have God's love, if you're a Christian, and you trust in Christ... This is not just something that you kind of, you know, you believe like, hey, I believe that World War II happened or, you know, uh, there, was a, there was a flood or this and that. No, I have full trust that I am not facing the wrath of God. Not because of what I did, because if it was from what I, what I would do, I would have never attained it. Then I would be really worried. I would be in despair. But I'm not because God's love. Do you really believe it? Not just mentally, do you really believe it here? I had that issue myself. One time my mom told me, you know what? You believe here, but you don't believe here. And I didn't tell her anything. I actually kind of went, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. But internally it got me really bad. It really got me. And I thought to myself, she's right. I only believe it in my mind. I only look at it intellectually and say, yeah, I believe this. I mean, nobody can refute this. But my heart was saying something different. And I did not love God because I did not obey His commandments. This is why we preach this. This is why we talk about this. We want to love God. Praise God first and foremost. That is the great commandment. Then we love our neighbors and we have to love our neighbors because that is the new disposition and nature that we have for our neighbors because of what God has done. Now in verse 4, I'm sorry, in verse 5, there's still one section as we're going in reverse. It says, and hope does not put us to shame. What is hope? Thank you. What is this hope? Now, in our world, in the way that we think, sometimes we say, I hope the Dodgers win the World Series. And when we say that, what are we saying? That it's something that I desire, it's something that I want, but I don't know if it's going to happen. Is, am I correct? Okay. The Bible at times uses the word hope in that way, but sometimes it uses it differently. Let's read this um, definition from the Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology. We need to look at these scriptures, as I was stating before, not only the scriptures, but people that have studied this over and over and over again. Because they look at every single thing. I don't have time to do it, unfortunately. I wish I did. And I know many of us don't have that time. We have family. We have work. We have things that we need to do. And although we try to the best of our ability to put time in to read the word of God, to meditate, and to learn. We just don't have that same time that others do. 
So we need to look at these things of what they, what they write about. And we will know because we do read the scriptures, don't we? We will know if what they're speaking about is true or not. They should give their sources. They should give their evidence. And I looked into this and this is, I believe this to be true. It says, hope to trust in, wait for, look for, or desire something or someone. Or to expect something beneficial in the future. 27 times kawa, which is to hope, comes into the Greek Old Testament as hupomeno, that's to wait, to be patient, to endure. Where suffering is present, the term may indicate that the individual is bearing affliction patiently while hopefully waiting for the Lord's deliverance. Psalm 40 is a psalm of thanksgiving that recounts that suffering of an individual whose hope was realized. Usually in that case, when we speak of the Psalms, it's David, right? And he was going through a lot of stuff. The reason that hope does not disappoint, and this is key to hope. The reason hope does not disappoint is that we already have a taste of the future glory because of the love with which the Holy Spirit fills our hearts. In other words, the gifts of love and of the Spirit are down payments of future glory for which we hope. And as I said it before, if you truly believe in the promises of God, that His promises never fail, your hope is true hope. It will not die. It will not go away. Everything that you go through is for the purpose of glorifying God. And I want to use a scripture, Psalm 71.5, where it states, For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Do we trust the Lord? Do we have hope in God? Whoever said yes, amen. Now, moving in reverse again. Chapter four, uh, sorry, verse 4 says, character produces hope. So now we know what hope is. What is character? And I had to think about that. I'm like, well, how would I define character? I always have that issue is when my son or even my wife will ask me, well, what does that mean? It's like, I know what it means, but I, I, I can't seem to define it correctly, like give the right way for them to understand. And I, if I had the dictionary handy, which I kind of do in my phone, but I almost feel like that's cheating if I'm supposed to know it. But what does character mean? This is quoted from the commentary to Romans by Michael F. Bird, where it states, the word for character is dokimi, which means the quality of withstanding a test. That is a way of saying that hardship shows the true nature of our personality and the natural proclivity, in other words, inclination or predisposition of our desires. So it's not who you are. Now your inclination, your character is of Christ. If we have the mind of Christ, if we have the faith that is given to us, it doesn't come from us, it's given to us, it should be a holy faith that trusts in Christ and in his word. And I would like to cite from 2 Corinthians 2.9 in the Legacy Standard Version. 
says, for, this, for to this end also I wrote so that I, I might know your proven character, whether you are obedient in all things. See how it talks about character and obedience together. Is your character now as a Christian obedience and love? Because if it's depression, if it's hate, if it's mean, if it's whatever words you want to throw in there, biblically speaking, that's not the true marks of a Christian, is it? As we went through earlier, what are the true marks of a Christian? So we need to be cognizant of that, but we also need to believe that in our hearts. Trust in the Lord. Next phrase, and it says, Endurance produces character from verse 4. Endurance. We should know what endurance is. Right? That means you can go longer at certain things, especially when you have endurance in running. You have endurance. That means you can run for a long time. You have endurance in things. Look at 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. This was Paul when he was speaking about all the things that he's, that he's going through for the church of Corinth. And how he's work, doing all these things. And listen to this. It says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. What is that? Obtain the prize. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Why are they exercising self-control? Because they're training. Training. That's the endurance part. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable. So a prize that is imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating in the air, right? Like a boxer. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He's put himself at even a higher level because he's a preacher and he's an evangelist and he's creating churches and the kingdom is spreading, right? It's going from a mustard seed and spreading on. That if he were to fail on these things, he would have to be disqualified. That's why the calling of an elder, of a pastor, of a deacon is even higher. And it's something you need to think about if you ever choose to pursue that. We are at a higher calling. But we are running a race that has already been won. But we are called to run the race like if we could win. So that is our predisposition to run the race, to obey Christ, to serve the Lord, like if we're going to win, knowing that we've already won, not because of what we did, but because of what Christ did. And that's, that in itself is also hope, right? Because we're running the race that we know we can't win, but it's already been won for us because of Christ. It's already been decided. Do you trust that in your heart? Do you believe that Christ already fulfilled this for you? And now you're doing it because he's calling you to do it, because you love him, because you obey him? That's what you've got to think to yourself. You've got to self-examine. Why are we here in church? We worship the Lord. 
we worship the Lord together. Yes, we could worship the Lord on our own, which we do. But there's something about doing it together as a spiritual family. We cannot neglect that. There is the Lord's Day where we come to worship the Lord. This service is for the Lord. So we're running the race. We're doing these things like we're going to win the race, knowing that it's already been won. But we're doing it anyway because we love God. And we need to have self-control. And that is what's giving us endurance. Now, verse 3. The last section of verse 3. says, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Okay. How is it that we gain endurance? When you're running, when you're training, whatever it is that you want to do. You want to play. A, a lot of us here have played basketball. We've played in leagues. You want to get better, you train, you practice. In music, you got to practice. Sometimes that practice can be somewhat of suffering because you're putting a lot of stress on your body or on your mind. And that is what's producing your endurance, that you're able to not only be good at it, but you're able to do it for a long time, repeatedly, at, like this. So that is the analogy that is being used. Because suffering can be many different things. But suffering is the instrument that God uses to give us that endurance that leads to character, that leads to the hope. That hope that is we are not going to face the wrath of God. We have been saved by our precious Lord. So let's go. What is suffering or what are some of the examples of suffering and affliction and persecution and all these things let's go to isaiah 48 10 where it says behold i have refined you but not as silver i have tried you in the furnace of affliction so what does that mean refined something especially when it comes to jewelry you put it in the fire it cleans out and it gets rid of everything that is nasty and ugly and whatever else you want to throw in there that shouldn't be in there. And now it's perfect and shiny and beautiful and hot for the Lord. Oh, I added that in there. Fire for God, right? But that's been the, the, the refining that God does. So put ourselves as that example. God is refining us through affliction, through sufferings. What does Zechariah 13.9 Say, and I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. See what God's doing here? He's refining them. He's removing their uncleanliness. Isn't that sanctification too? Little by little. Taking those things that we struggle with away. Little, little by little. That's how we know God is working in us. This is not falsehoods. This is not fake. This is real. This is real life. God uses suffering, affliction, persecution, whatever else you want to throw in there. To refine us in the fire. To make us Christ-like. Like I was speaking to a brother years ago. He was going through some things. And I said, look. With the relationships and the people that are around you. It sucks. 
I understand. It, it can be horrible at times, but your direction is Christ. That's who is your object of faith. That is who you live for. And all these things, whether good or bad or whatever it is, use them for the glory of God. Get closer to him. A lot of times when people are suffering is when they actually reach out to God. And that's sad because growing up in the church, I saw many people come and go. And one of the generalization, uh, general things that I saw was that people would come to church because some tragedy happened. Somebody died. They lost their, their house. They lost their job. They're asking for prayer. They start coming to church. And then when things start going well, oh, what happened to that person? Oh, you know what? I don't know. They just stopped coming. It's almost like you didn't even realize it. It's kind of sad, but you didn't even realize they were gone. Especially me. I was a kid at the time or even a, a, a preteen. And I would notice these things like, yeah, what happened to that person? You see that a lot. That's why when, when natural disasters happen, what gets filled quickly? It's the pews, the churches. Because they're asking for prayer. They want to feel safe. It's all about feelings. It's all about emotions. And then when that's gone, when they're like, you know what? My life is good. Oh, they start making excuses. You know, I got a lot of work. My family, you know, whatever, it, whatever they want to throw in there. Do we do that? Have we, caught, have we done that before? I know I have. So that's part of the refining, the sanctification. We need to go through those things. And all the apostles went through that. Even John, even though he did not die, even though he wasn't actually martyred, he still went through suffering, right? What did it say in Revelation? I'm over here and I'm part of the tribulation, right? Didn't he say that? He was... He was suffering. He was being persecuted. So let's go to 1 Peter 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We are being tested by the Lord. We need to remember that. Was not Abraham tested? And we can always go back and say, well, God knows his heart. No, he's decreed everything from before the foundation of the world. He knows what's going to happen. Not only that, he knows what he's decreed and what he's allowed. And, and we, that's a whole other subject, right? But... If he knows, why is he testing them? Because that is the instrument that God has chosen to use to refine us. He refines us in the fire. The sufferings that produce the endurance, the character, and then the hope. Now you truly have hope in God. You have that faith. 
that you might have not had or you thought you, you had. But if you go through sufferings, if you're going through bad and you're still like, well, it sucks, but I know it's, a, it's, it's all for the glory of God. When you hear people say that, you're like, wow, they really truly believe. Do we believe? Do we trust? That's what you have to examine in your heart. Now, I will say this. When Paul was being beat down, when he was stoned and left for dead, let me tell you something. He had joy, but the joy was not expressible like, oh, it's okay, stone me again. No, but he had, why did he have joy? That joy that surpasses all understanding and that peace because he knows that he's doing this for Christ. But he was still grieved, and I'm sure, and he would get mad sometimes. If you read Acts, he would get mad. I think if it was one of the high priest's uh, servants or bodyguards slapped him in the face and he got mad. I don't know if you've ever caught that. He was known as a hothead. So, when you're in sufferings, if you know what the final outcome is, that's why you say, yeah, it sucks, and I could even be sad about it right now, but I know that when this is over, glory be to Christ. Now, how do we apply this in our daily practice? Rejoice in sufferings. Look at Matthew 5, 11 through 12. L really listen or read the words. Not just an overview. Really listen to them. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's like a twofold, well, there's even more than that, but like the main twofold thing here. Do you really believe you have your reward in heaven that is great? You will rejoice in your sufferings. Number two, when you speak the truth, somehow, some way, even if it's really small, you will somewhat be persecuted. You will they will say something to you, they will think you're a cook, a kook, I'm sorry. They will think you are crazy, whatever else that you want to throw in there. Because the truth does divide. True doctrine divides. And sometimes people look at you and you're like, these guys are crazy. What do you mean that an elder has to be just a male? That's what the Bible says. And a lot of people will get up in arms over that. Even within the church, we do get persecuted. We get talk back to we get people mad because of the things that we say and when we're saying that Christ is the only way which he himself said people look at us like how could you believe that Christ is the only way to heaven they can't they can't understand it's foolishness to them but the gospel is foolishness right to those that are out there to those that do not believe that do not have the saving grace now let's go to Acts 5, 40 through 41. And this is again in the Legacy Standard Version. Where it says, So they followed his advice. And after calling the apostles in and beating them, they commanded them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the Sanhedrin or the council 
rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name. And that is the name of Christ, right? Because it said not to speak in the name of Jesus. Listen to that. Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy. Who thinks like that? The people of God. We are worthy. If we're worthy to suffer the shame of God, of Christ, we're his children. We're his people. That is a beautiful statement. I've read it a few times, but now really looking at it is like when I'm, whenever I'm persecuted and it's been very small and it says of people telling me something. But when, if ever, I were to really truly be persecuted, I'm going to consider myself worthy because just like the apostles, just like the prophets, just like Jesus himself, I will be persecuted for the truth of Christ. And then the final point that I want to make. So we rejoice in our sufferings. But the next point is, faith is crucial. You will not be able to rejoice in sufferings. You will not be able to be counting yourself as worthy for the shame of the gospel, the shame of the gospel. Because if you don't have the faith that is given by the Holy Spirit, you will think this is foolishness. What does Romans 8.28 say? Do you believe this? And we know that for those who love God, for those who love God, not the world, not the un, un, uh, unrepentant, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Do you believe this? Amen. Are you of the called according to God's purposes, and do you believe that God works all things for good? Yes. Amen. And then what does Romans 8.18 say? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Again, do you believe this? That glory, Christ, our God, is greater, more amazing, more fantastic, more majestic, more holy, more wonderful than anything that we go through in this world. So we rejoice in our sufferings because Christ is King, He is God. And we believe in his name. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our triune God, you are so merciful, so gracious, so loving. And we are so grateful for that. But even our gratefulness, the way our thanksgiving is not enough to truly glorify you. But the trust that we have, whether we are in suffering or whether we are in true happiness where nothing is going on badly in our lives, we will still glorify your name. We will still exalt your name above the heavens because you are God. And you're the only God. 
And not only are you a God, but you're a God of love. And you're a God that is holy and just and right and perfect. You know all things. You are all powerful. And no one can go against you and change what you have decreed. And that means that your promises will be fulfilled. They have been fulfilled and they will be fulfilled. And we truly believe in this and that's why we rejoice. And that's why we come together to worship you. Because we love you and we know that you are God. So thank you Lord for this time. Thank you Lord for your word. And please consecrate the Lord's Supper as we come here to celebrate your death and resurrection once again through the means of grace, which is your holy supper. For these things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.